This podcast is supported by Zoll LifeVest. Sudden cardiac death is a leading cause of mortality in low EF patients with heart failure or following a heart attack. Zoll is proud to partner with your care team to pursue better outcomes together. Visit LifeVestResults.com to learn more. Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hey, Cardio Nerds, Dan Embender here. Welcome back to the Cardio Nerds Cardiac Critical Care Series, which is a multi-institutional collaboration made possible by contributions of fellow leads and expert faculty from several programs led by series co-chairs, Dr. Mark Belkin, Dr. Eunice Dugan, Dr. Karin Desai, and Dr. Yoav Karpinchev. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. CardioNerds is an independent, fellow-founded platform with the mission to democratize cardiovascular education. To continue creating free and unbiased quality content, we are proud to collaborate with all stakeholders, including trainees, experts, fellowship programs, professional societies, industry, and patient advocacy groups. Curriculum and content is planned, produced, and reviewed solely by CardioNerds without external bias. And with that, let's get nerdy. Welcome back, Cardio Nerds, to the Cardiac Critical Care Series. This is Eunice Dugan, one of the co-chairs of the series, and I'm here again with Dr. Samit Goyal and Karin Desai. We've already gone through the initial evaluation and assessment of cardiogenic shock and nerded out over the hemodynamics. So today, we will be covering LV-predominant shock, and we'll be leaving RV-predominant shock and BIV shock for another day. To help lead this discussion, we have a fantastic team. We have one of our most accomplished Cardio Nerds today. Dr. Vanessa Bloomer. Vanessa completed her internal medicine residency and chief residency at the University of Miami and has gone on to general cardiology fellowship at Duke University, where she has become a prolific researcher in advanced heart failure, joined the Journal of Cardiac Failure as a fit editor, and was awarded the 2011 Lenec Fellow in Training Clinician Award by the AHA. This is amongst her many, many accomplishments. We're really excited, though, because soon Vanessa will be trading in sunny Durham and joining Amit and I here in snowy Cleveland for her advanced heart failure and transplant fellowship. Welcome, Vanessa. Thank you, Eunice, for that very kind introduction. And hi, Cardio Nerds. Now I have the great pleasure of introducing a good friend of mine, Dr. Shashan Sinha. Dr. Sinha is an advanced heart failure, mechanical circulatory support, and cardiac transplant cardiologist who currently serves as the medical director of the Cardiac Intensive Care Unit and director of the Cardiovascular Critical Care Research Program at Inova Fairfax Hospital. He received his undergraduate degree cum laude in applied mathematics from Harvard College and his medical degree with honors from the University of Chicago. He completed his internship and residency in internal medicine at the University of Pennsylvania followed by a year as a critical care hospitalist at Penn Presbyterian Medical Center. He then went to the University of Michigan, where he completed his clinical fellowship training in cardiovascular disease and advanced heart failure and transplant cardiology. Dr. Sinha also completed a two-year research fellowship and master's program in health and healthcare research at the University of Michigan Institute for Healthcare Policy and Innovation. The primary focus of his research is to understand and improve the quality of care for patients experiencing cardiac critical illness, including cardiac arrest, cardiogenic shock, and acute decompensated heart failure. 
Dr. Sinha is also a steering committee member and site principal investigator for the Multicenter Cardiogenic Shock Working Group and Critical Care Cardiology Trials Network. Over the last year, I have had the honor to work with Dr. Sinha on the editorial board of the Journal of Cardiac Failure and also through the Cardiogenic Shock Working Group. He has become a colleague I greatly admire, a research mentor, a sponsor, but perhaps more importantly, I have the privilege to call Dr. Sinha a friend. And as impressive as his professional resume is, I'm able to attest to his equally impressive humanistic qualities. He is all around an incredible human, and we are so fortunate to have him here today. Thank you so much, Shashank, for joining us. Wow. Thank you very much for that incredibly kind and cordial introduction, Vanessa. It is truly my honor and privilege to join all of you for this podcast. I'm a big fan of you a big fan of cardio nerds, and an even bigger fan of the Cardiac Critical Care series. So I'm truly grateful to be a guest on this podcast. Dr. Sinha, thank you so much for joining us. This is Amit Goyal, and I am beside myself with joy and excitement. Between you and Drs. Dugan, Bloomer, and Desai, I just cannot imagine a better group to be talking about cardiogenic shock. So let's talk about shock. I feel like there are a lot of parallels here with neurology. When it comes to shock, Localizing the lesion is so important for helping us personalize our approach and using the right tools in our toolkit. On the topic of LV-predominant cardiogenic shock, what tools do you use to define the presence of cardiogenic shock in a given patient? That's a great question. First of all, let's try to define cardiogenic shock, which is a hemodynamically complex and multifactorial syndrome. It is one of the most common indications for admission to a cardiac intensive care unit and it has a short-term mortality that ranges from 35 to 50%. Simply put, cardiogenic shock is defined by systemic hypoperfusion and tissue hypoxia due to a primary cardiac insult or dysfunction. But it's important to recognize that although contemporary trials and guidelines outline clinical criteria for defining cardiogenic shock, they're limited by lack of uniformity. Nonetheless, some clinical criteria used to define cardiogenic shock typically include Evidence of hypotension, classically defined as systolic blood pressure less than 90 millimeters of mercury for at least 30 minutes, and or use of vasopressors, inotropes, or mechanical circulatory support to maintain systolic blood pressure greater than 90 millimeters of mercury, and evidence of end-organ hypoperfusion. For example, serum lactic acid greater than 2 millimoles per liter, evidence of acute kidney injury, evidence of acute liver injury, evidence of altered mental status. All of this, of course, in the context of acute coronary syndrome or acute decompensated heart failure. I'm happy to report that rumors of the death of the physical exam have been greatly exaggerated. So first things first, do a physical exam. Patients with cardiogenic shock can present with altered mental status, cooler modeled extremities, Rawls, orthopnea, paroxysmal nocturnal dyspnea, bendopnea, an S3, hepatojugular reflux, lower extremity edema, or a combination of all of the above. A 12-lead EKG can be useful in assessing for myocardial ischemia or infarction. You certainly don't want to miss a STEMI or an NSTEMI. Laboratory markers, including serum lactic acid, transaminases, kidney function, biomarkers, including troponin and natriuretic peptides may be useful. And of course, an echocardiogram serves as an excellent point of care tool to help demonstrate and confirm evidence of LV systolic dysfunction, valvular abnormalities, and other structural and disease processes. Finally, a right heart catheterization 
demonstrating an abnormally low cardiac output and index with elevated filling pressures may be useful in facilitating the diagnosis and subsequent management of cardiogenic shock. This was fantastic, Dr. Sinha. I really cannot expect less from you, but such a nice summary. Now that we have defined the clinical entities of LV shock, we can perhaps springboard off of that to talk about its etiology, its various phenotypes, its clinical and hemodynamic evaluation, and the complexities of its management. But before we do, there has been an increasing recognition of distinct LV shock entities. In particular, the differentiation between cardiogenic shock due to acute myocardial infarction or AMI cardiogenic shock and cardiogenic shock due to decompensated heart failure or heart failure cardiogenic shock. I have personally heard you give a brilliant explanation of the differences in the development and clinical trajectory between these two. Could you please give our audience an explanation on how you view AMI versus heart failure cardiogenic shock? how they might lead to distinct clinical phenotypes, and why this differentiation is so important? That's an excellent question, Dr. Bloomer. Truthfully, we could devote an entire hour to the differences in AMI versus heart failure cardiogenic shock, so I'll do my best to be brief. While AMI cardiogenic shock has really been the subject of fertile investigation over several decades, contemporary data, both from the cardiogenic shock working group and the Critical Care Cardiology Trials Network now suggests that heart failure-related cardiogenic shock is the predominant cause, accounting for more than 50% of all cases of cardiogenic shock. Let's summarize. AMI cardiogenic shock is characterized by an abrupt presentation due to a primary myocardial ischemic insult leading to necrosis occurring in about 5-10% to of AMI patients and can occur in either STEMI or NSTEMI. The canonical clinical course is hypotension due to primary myocardial dysfunction leading to hypoperfusion with congestion as a later clinical or hemodynamic finding. Conversely, a patient with heart failure-related shock commonly presents with acutely decompensated heart failure and congestion culminates in hyperperfusion and finally hypotension as the later finding. These opposing clinical trajectories of AMI and heart failure cardiogenic shock have been very well described in a recent review led by you, Jacob Abraham, and Naveen Kapoor, published in the Journal of Cardiac Failure in October of 2021. We are now learning that there are differences between de novo heart failure shock as compared to more acute chronic presentations, again, both from the Critical Care Cardiology Trials Network as well as the Cardiogenic Shock Working Group. And most recently, we have published one-year outcomes examining differences between AMI cardiogenic shock and heart failure cardiogenic shock based on our single center experience at ANOVA. So there's truly a lot to learn and a clear need to delineate distinct criteria for AMI versus heart failure cardiogenic shock. Thanks, Dr. Sinha. That's really wonderful to hear. I've honestly never thought about it that way, and it makes a lot of sense. Thanks for that. We as a cardiovascular community have often focused on AMI cardiogenic shock. However, it is really awesome to hear about these different ways and how that affects the clinical course. In a prior episode of the series, CardioNerds were treated to a great discussion on hemodynamics with Dr. Noshin Riza, so this is going to serve as a good review. Dr. Sinha, can you walk us through systematically how you approach distinguishing LV-predominant from RV-predominant or by V-shock, and why is this important? Yes, that was an amazing episode. I really enjoyed it, and I highly encourage listeners who haven't checked it out yet to definitely take a listen. Dr. Riza is a great friend and colleague. Let's summarize. 
LV predominant shock has been developed to describe the congestive profiles of these patients. LV dominant cardiogenic shock is characterized by high pulmonary capillary wedge pressure and normal or reduced right atrial pressure in the setting of reduced cardiac output. Conversely, RV dominant cardiogenic shock is characterized by elevated right atrial pressure, normal to low pulmonary capillary wedge pressure, and normal to reduced cardiac output. And finally, biventricular shock is characterized by hypotension, elevated right atrial pressure, elevated pulmonary capillary wedge pressure, and reduced cardiac output. It's important to recognize that recent data suggests that biventricular shock is very common and may be present in as many as 40 to 50% of patients who were suspected of having LV-dominant cardiogenic shock and is associated with increased mortality which is why hemodynamic characterization by these congested profiles is so critically important. Dr. Sinha, thank you so much for describing your approach to phenotyping these critically ill patients. It is understandable why accurate phenotyping is so crucial to patient care, and it's humbling that despite all our increased knowledge about cardiogenic shock and the increasing number of tools we now have available to us for patient management, in-hospital mortality rates still range from around 30 to 50%, as you mentioned at the beginning of this episode. So it's truly a devastating clinical condition where we have a lot of room to make some impact. So if you allow us, let's pick your brain a little bit to understand the best way to manage these complex patients. First of all, do you routinely try to risk stratify your LV shock patients? Is there an illness severity score that you prefer? Or do you rely more on clinical gestalt? And final question to that, how should our listeners consider using the Sky staging system, which I know there's been some increased granularity that's been added over the past year to guide care? All great questions, Dr. Desai. Unfortunately, I don't have any easy answers or simple solutions, but let's give it a shot. Several risk prediction scores have been developed, predominantly in AMI cardiogenic shock patients, including, but not limited to, the CARD shock score, the IABP shock 2 risk score, the CLIP score, which is biomarker-based, and of course, I'd be remiss not to mention our very own Inova Heart and Vascular Institute, or IHVI, risk score. But perhaps the most clinically useful and actionable risk score is really the SKY staging system, which has been retrospectively validated across several single-center and multi-center studies, both in North America as well as Europe. It is simple elegant, and easy to use, characterizing those patients at risk, namely stage A shock, all the way to those in deteriorating or extremis requiring extracorporeal support, namely sky stage E shock. Recently, the Cardiogenic Shock Working Group has tried to standardize the definitions of sky stages with respect to hypotension, hypoperfusion, and treatment intensity in a publication that is forthcoming in the July issue of the Journal of the American College of Cardiology. We believe the granularity may be very useful in communicating across disciplines, including emergency physicians, cardiologists, critical care, cardiologists, and even across institutions about the severity of illness for a given patient with cardiogenic shock. Dr. Sinha, that's a very helpful tool that I know you have spoken about quite a bit, specifically the sky staging system. I've read a lot of the work from the cardiogenic shock work group, including regarding the granularity that's needed for the sky staging system. One of the papers your group has published has talked about how even within each stage, whether it be C, D, and E, there's differences in mortality kind of based on what cluster of cardiogenic shock you're in. 
whether you're congested from an RV standpoint, LV standpoint, or not congested. Could you expound on that a little bit further? Yes, thanks for that excellent question, Dr. Desai. And so I believe the paper you're referring to is the analysis led by Dr. Zweck and colleagues published in JAHA last year, in which we recognize that cardiogenic shock really is a heterogeneous syndrome and has, as a result, a myriad of presentations and protein outcomes. We examined approximately 2,000 patients with cardiogenic shock from really two international cohorts. The one you're most familiar with, our cardiogenic shock working group cohort, with respect to myocardial infarction, as well as acute on chronic heart failure patient, and then the Danish retroshock MI registry. What we learned through this machine learning approach was that we were able to identify and validate three distinct cardiogenic shock phenotypes with specific and very reproducible associations with mortality. They were as follows, one, non-congested, two, cardiorenal, and three, cardiometabolic. The cardiometabolic shock cluster is the one, not surprisingly, that had the highest risk of developing stage D or E shock, as well as in-hospital mortality among the phenotypes, regardless of cause. Exactly how best to implement these machine learning approaches in a clinically actionable way remains to be determined, and we are excited about the forthcoming analyses from our advanced data analytics working group within the cardiogenic shock working group. This has been a great conversation. Thank you so much, Dr. Sinha. Personally, I'm very passionate about better risk profiling these patients and everything that has to do with deep phenoprofiling, heart failure, cardiogenic shock patients. And I think that we can all agree that a lot more needs to be done to advance the field and better phenotype these patients. Now that we have a sense on how sick our patients are, or at least we think we have a sense of how sick our patients are and their risk for subsequent morbidity and mortality, let's move forward and talk a little bit about management. Can we begin with perhaps pharmacotherapies? It's often the first thing given to our cardiogenic shock patients, either in the emergency department or our ICUs. What, in your opinion, is the current role for inotropes vasodilators or vasopressors in the management of LV cardiogenic shock? That's a fantastic question, Dr. Bloomer. And I highly encourage our listeners to take a look at your most recently published review in Current Opinions of Cardiology, along with Dr. Conwar and colleagues on the role of medical management of cardiogenic shock in the era of mechanical circulatory support. But let's summarize. Medical management of cardiogenic shock is designed to optimize determinants of cardiac output, namely contractility, preload, afterload, and heart rate. There are no randomized controlled trial data comparing vasopressors to placebo due to a lack of clinical equipoise, but there have been several comparative analyses of different classes of vasopressors which have been performed and important for us to understand. Listeners may be familiar with the SOAP2 trial published in the New England Journal, which randomized nearly 1,700 patients with shock to treatment with norepinephrine or dopamine. And while the 28-day mortality was not significantly different between the dopamine and norepinephrine groups, there was a higher incidence of arrhythmic events among patients treated with dopamine. This was further highlighted in a 2017 systematic review and meta-analysis of 510 cardiogenic shock patients across nine studies, in which short-term mortality was 30% in norepinephrine-treated patients as compared to 50% in dopamine-treated patients. So based on the available evidence, and of course its accompanying limitations, 
I recommend that norepinephrine be considered as the initial vasopressor of choice in most cardiogenic shock patients with LV-dominant shock. And indeed, the Acute Cardiovascular Care Association of the European Society of Cardiology, in fact, published a position statement for the diagnosis and treatment of patients with acute myocardial infarction complicated by cardiogenic shock in 2020. In that statement, vasopressors, norepinephrine preferable over dopamine, and the presence of persistent hypotension received a grade level of 2BB recommendation. Intravenous inotropes to increase cardiac output received a grade of 2BC recommendation. Reflecting upon my own practice, I would state the use of inotropes, vasopressors, and vasodilators, especially in heart failure cardiogenic shock patients, are predominantly limited to sky B and C patients with LV dominant shock. Thanks, Dr. Sinha. That was a fantastic summary. And with that, you touched upon some of the roles and limitations of pharmacologic therapies. I think should talk about when it's time to escalate support to mechanical circulatory support. Now, should it be if a patient declines after one high-dose vasoactive medication, after two, when should we consider adding a temporary mechanical circulatory support and do shock teams play a useful role here? Yes, these are, of course, all important questions. And some would say the holy grail. How do you match the right patient to the right device at the right time? Unfortunately, professional society guidelines are largely limited here, including the aforementioned European Society of Cardiology statement. Most of the treatment recommendations were limited to level of evidence C, reflecting the paucity of randomized data in this space. I am, however, highly encouraged by the data emerging regarding the use of shock teams engaging interventional cardiology, cardiac surgery, advanced heart failure transplant cardiology, critical care cardiology, namely all of you on this podcast, which may be quite helpful in answering some of these questions. My good friend and colleague, Dr. Tarani, and colleagues at ANOVA published the first observational study in JAK in 2019, demonstrating that a standardized team-based approach is associated with improved outcomes. Compared with 30-day survival of 47%, consistent with national averages in 2016, 30-day survival increased to 77% in 2018. Subsequent single-center data from the University of Utah and University of Ottawa bolstered these initial findings. And most recently, the Critical Care Cardiology Trials Network in another JAK publication in late 2021 demonstrated in a multicenter observational study that centers with shock teams were more likely to obtain invasive hemodynamics, use advanced types of temporary mechanical circulatory support, and have lower risk-adjusted mortality, perhaps due to this golden hour of critical care in which the key stakeholders involved in managing cardiogenic shock are present Thus, initiation or escalation of temporary mechanical support largely depends on matching the right device to the right patient at the right time. Because the risk and number of complications increases with both the type and duration of mechanical circulatory support, these decisions are complex, nuanced, and must take into account your individual institutional as well as operator expertise. You know, across this whole series, we've been painting a very clear picture that the syndrome of cardiogenic shock is a very complex one, and there's a dearth of high-quality data. We have to personalize the approach to patients based on where the lesion is. You know, we enjoyed our discussion with Dr. Anulala about the value of shock teams because these conversations and decision-making are complex and need to happen with a multidisciplinary approach. Are there situations where our shock teams might advocate for activating or inserting 
an MCS device as an initial therapeutic strategy before really reaching for vasoactive meds? And do you think there'll be future clinical trials to help us understand this question better? Yes, that's a great question. And I believe there actually is a role, particularly in Sky Stage D and E patients, irrespective of etiology, AMI or heart failure cardiogenic shock, where clearly temporary mechanical circulatory support should be employed as an initial therapeutic strategy. But importantly, there are several clinical trials that are underway that may provide further insight into answering these questions, including danger shock, aptly named due to enrollment in Denmark and Germany, Euroshock, and ECLS shock. Let's examine each of these in turn. Danger shock is a prospective multicenter open-label trial in patients with AMI cardiogenic shock randomized one-to-one to an Impella CP or current guideline-driven therapy with an expected enrollment of 360 patients. The Euroshock trial will test the benefit of mechanical circulatory support using venoarterial extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, or VA ECMO, initiated early after acute percutaneous coronary intervention, PCI, for cardiogenic shock. And the goal is to randomize 428 patients with cardiogenic shock complicating acute coronary syndrome to either very early ECMO plus standard pharmacotherapy or standard pharmacotherapy alone. And finally, the ECLS shock trial is a 420-patient controlled international multicenter randomized open-label trial designed to compare whether treatment with ECLS in addition to early revascularization with PCI or alternatively coronary artery bypass grafting, cabbage, and optimal medical treatment is beneficial in comparison to no ECLS in patients with severe infarct-related cardiogenic shock. There's an important subtext here. All of these trials are in Europe and all are focused on AMI shock. So in addition to these trials, I think we really have a strong evidence gap and a large unmet need to develop randomized control trials in heart failure shock and to do cardiogenic shock trials in the U.S. And that's really my exhortation to all of you to get involved. Thank you so much, Dr. Sinha. I really loved that last sentence. Again, one of my biggest passions is the gaps that we have specifically in heart failure, cardiogenic shock, and how most of the evidence is derived from AMI cardiogenic shock. In the time that we have left, perhaps we can chat a little bit more about temporary mechanical circulatory support options. Despite newer technologies, there is enough evidence suggesting that the intraortic balloon pump remains the most commonly employed device in contemporary cardiac ICUs. And obviously, this varies between continent, and we probably see this a lot more in the U.S. than in Europe. And for those of you that are on Twitter, you have seen these pictures of the balloon pump and where they end up in some of the European hospitals. But I think it is still true that in the U.S., it remains the most commonly used device in our contemporary ICUs. And this is probably multifactorial in part due to its ease of placement, clinical familiarity, and relatively low complication rates. Based upon your experience, Dr. Sinha, and acknowledging the results of the clinical trials that admittedly focus on certain groups of patients like you brilliantly mentioned, do you believe that there is still a benefit of the intraoretic balloon pump therapy in those suffering from cardiogenic shock and perhaps more specifically, heart failure, cardiogenic shock? And if so, what type of patient do you think most likely benefits from balloon counterpulsation? Wow. That truly is the million-dollar question. 
But I think for our listeners, it may be instructive to review what the intraortic balloon pump does and how it actually works. So the IABP reduces systolic left ventricular afterload and augments diastolic coronary perfusion pressure, thereby increasing cardiac output and improving coronary artery blood flow. For this reason, the intraortic balloon pump was considered for the initial stabilization of patients with cardiogenic shock. Listeners will likely be aware of the IABP Shock 2 trial, a multicenter randomized open label trial conducted between 2009 and 2012, in which 600 patients with cardiogenic shock complicating acute myocardial infarction undergoing early revascularization were randomized to an intraortic balloon pump versus control. The IBP Shock 2 trial did not show a benefit of IBP use versus control on 30 day and one year and subsequently long-term mortality. And for this reason, European guidelines have downgraded IBP use for cardiogenic shock from a previous class one to a class 3B recommendation. There is a distinction here because in the US guidelines, IBP use has been downgraded to a class 2BB recommendation based on registry data. And yet, the intraortic balloon pump remains the most commonly used temporary MCS device worldwide. And it's especially commonly used in heart failure cardiogenic shock, where the additional half a liter to a liter per minute of support may be beneficial to stabilizing these patients. I think we're all very eager to learn the results of the ALT-SHOCK-2 trial, which is a prospective randomized multicenter open-label study of patients with acute decompensated heart failure shock who will be randomized to early intraortic balloon pump or to vasoactive treatments. The primary endpoint here will be patient survival at 60 days or successful bridge to heart replacement therapy, and we eagerly look forward to those results. Thanks, Dr. Sinha, for giving us the global view and the basic evidence behind intraortic balloon pumps. Now, moving beyond the balloon pump, it's probably accurate to say that there are a number of institutions which have moved away from the balloon pump for shock management. Can you give us your thoughts on the merits and risk of some other temporary MCS devices in the management of LV shock? How are your considerations different for heart failure cardiogenic shock as compared to acute MI shock? Yes, thank you for that excellent question. I want to specifically recognize that primarily tertiary and quaternate care, critical care centers in developed nations will be the ones that have access to these devices. In addition, I should mention that this is actually the subject of a forthcoming statement from the American Heart Association on the escalation and de-escalation of temporary mechanical support for which I was proud to serve as the vice chair, led by Dr. Brave Geller. The Impella is a catheter-based continuous microaxial flow pump comprised of an Impella, aptly named, which is basically a rotating screw within a covered miniaturized housing that drains blood from the left ventricle or inferior vena cava and expels it into the ascending aorta or pulmonary artery. The family of devices is aptly named to reflect the approximate liters of flow that it provides. The Impella 2.5 provides the least. The Impella 5.0 or 5.5 provides the most at 5 liters per minute or 5.5 liters per minute, respectively. And the Impella CP is the most commonly used device and provides 3.5 to 4 liters per minute of support. In contrast, the Tandem Heart is an extracorporeal percutaneous left ventricular assist device with a centrifugal pump that consists of a cannula inserted into the femoral vein and advanced across the atrial septum into the left atrium where oxygenated blood is obtained. 
The oxygenated blood is then aspirated and pumped into one or both of the femoral arteries at a rate of four or more liters per minute. In both instances, the use of anticoagulation is required to counteract activation of the coagulation cascade caused by shear stress and the pump surface. And both devices can be used to allow support for a few hours to several days, and in some instances, several weeks. But let's examine some of the most important considerations, irrespective of whether your institution has a shock team or not. In acute myocardial infarction cardiogenic shock, I think it's important to recognize that shock severity, namely sky stage, revascularization status, including the level of completeness of that revascularization, presence or absence of mechanical complications, presence or absence of hypoxia, presence or absence of arrhythmias, contraindications to percutaneous support, including do not resuscitate status, terminal illness, inability to be anticoagulated, the presence of a left atrial thrombus in the case of the tandem heart device, a left ventricular thrombus in the case of the impella device, cardiac arrest with neurocatastrophe or advanced multi-system organ failure, and then finally, the use of IV antiplatelet agents such as Kangalore will have important considerations as to which device is selected. In heart failure shock, many of those considerations are similar, but in addition to that, I think it's important to consider anticipated exit strategies, including bridge to transplant, bridge to left ventricular assist device, bridge to recovery, and thus anticipated duration of support, and the ability to ambulate namely ambulatory configurations of these devices. Candidacy for advanced therapies is critical, and thus early engagement of your advanced heart failure and transplant cardiology colleagues, like Dr. Bloomer, are critical to success. Yes, thanks for that, Dr. Sinha, and what a great overview of some of the tools we have at our disposal for addressing cardiogenic shock beyond the balloon pump. I'd like to focus a bit on the Elvita Irida temporary microaxial flow pumps, and specifically the Impella platform of devices for now. We know that you have had a lot of clinical and investigative experience with this technology, so it would be amazing to hear if you could share with us your approach to the Impella support. Perhaps you can comment on the differences between the current Impella devices that are available and how you have personally incorporated them into your clinical practice. Thanks for that excellent question, Dr. Goyle. You know, the classic line we hear, especially in this incredible housing market around the country, location, location, location from realtors, and in clinical practice, the same is true in cardiogenic shock. I think it's patient selection, patient selection, patient selection. For these reasons, I think sky staging and phenotyping, AMI versus heart failure shock, are absolutely critical in choosing the right device for these patients. In fact, I would even ascribe some of the lack of perceived benefit in some of these small underpowered clinical trials due to the heterogeneity of the underlying patient population being studied. But with those caveats in mind, let's analyze some cases where each device has been approved by the FDA and may provide benefit. The Impella CP may be most useful for support of SKY-C AMI cardiogenic shock patients in the cardiac catheterization laboratory at or preceding the time of percutaneous coronary intervention. Most recently, the Impella 5.5 was approved by the FDA for use of mechanical circulatory support up to 14 days in 2019 at limited centers in the U.S. and is now expanding. The Impella 5.5 has several improvements over its predecessors, including increased rigidity, shorter length, and perhaps most importantly, a lack of a pigtail catheter on the ventricular end. These changes allow for easier operator pushability during implantation, and the lack of a pigtail catheter can reduce disruption of the valvular cordae 
and thereby decrease the overall thrombotic risk. Insertion via the axillary artery, or in some instances the aorta, along with these modifications, allows the preservation of patient mobility, which is very important, and can reduce the risk for infection. Indeed, data surrounding the Impella 5.5 is rapidly emerging and highly encouraging. Dr. Sinhal, from a management perspective, when you're treating these patients, what is your approach or what do you think should be our primary goals when caring for the LV shock patient? Should we focus on correcting specific metabolic derangements or should we focus on hitting certain metabolic targets, a combination of these? What is your approach? Great question, Vanessa. Ultimately, this is the question, whether you have a formal shock team or not, that needs to be answered and all those responsible for caring for this vulnerable, critically ill patient. First and foremost is serial reassessment of hemodynamics and end organ perfusion as frequently as possible, particularly during the early stage of recognition of cardiogenic shock. Secondly, it's optimizing the preload, afterload, contractility, as we discussed earlier. Third, timely and tailored treatment escalation by identifying worsening or refractory shock, either through rising lactate, increasing pressure requirements, worsening end organ function, and using hemodynamics to help guide treatment intensity. Data from both the National Cardiogenic Shock Initiative, as well as the Cardiogenic Shock Working Group, have shown the utility of indices such as cardiac power output and pulmonary artery pulsatility index in helping in this regard. And finally, daily assessment, if not more frequently, for biventricular recovery and weaning percutaneous support, vasopressors, and inotropes. Thanks, Dr. Senna. So to follow up on this discussion, how do we know if a given patient is likely to recover with more time and more support in the ICU, or if the patient just needs to be bridged to a durable ventricular assist device or VAD or even a transplant? You know, it's remarkable that it's been more than three years since the introduction of the revised United Network for Organ Sharing, or UNOS, Heart Allocation System. At this point, I believe there are more than 50 papers that have been published examining wait times and changes in patient care patterns and outcomes in the old versus new UNOS systems. And I'll point to one in particular, a recent analysis that was published in the Journal of American College of Cardiology by Dr. Topker and colleagues, examining the outcomes of patients on temporary mechanical circulatory support listed as status 1 to 2 in the current allocation system versus status 1A in the prior system for heart transplantation. And similar to prior reports, patients listed status 1 to 2 in the new system had greater use of temporary mechanical support, higher and quicker rates of transplantation, and lower weightless mortality than patients listed as status 1A under the old system. But the frequencies of transplant delisting for myocardial recovery on temporary support were lower under the new allocation system. For weightless candidates on ECMO or non-dischargeable biventricular assist devices, delisting for myocardial recovery decreased from 8% under the old system to 1.5% in the new system. And for status 2 patients on temporary mechanical support, recovery dropped from 1.6% to 0.2%. Patients delisted for recovery were more likely to have a non-ischemic diagnosis and lower pulmonary arterial pressures and were less likely to have implantable cardiac defibrillators consistent with the characteristics of patients with acute, namely recoverable heart failure 
as well as patients who have demonstrated recovery on durable left ventricular assist devices. While the analysis has some limitations, it has several thought-provoking implications, and I highly encourage listeners to read the accompanying editorial published by Drs. Jen Cowger and Rebecca Cogswell. And one of the key takeaways for me was that research within the field is hindered by a lack of linkage between various databases, including Intermax, UNOS, Medicare, or insurance databases, preventing the comparison of management strategies, namely MCS, transplant recovery, across similar heart failure populations. As a field, we need to abolish these data silos, and we need to engage more collaboratively in research endeavors to help our patients. This was phenomenal, Dr. Sinha. Thank you so, so, so much. We have sadly come to the end of our time, but I think it is safe to say that we could chat with you about this topic for much, much longer. At least I could. It has been such an honor and a privilege to hear from a true expert and innovator. As we conclude, or before we conclude, I think our listeners would absolutely love to hear from you about how you see the field of cardiogenic shock moving forward. What should we look forward to? What are the most important questions left to answer? And what has you most excited for the future? And perhaps a related question, which we ask all our experts, what makes your heart flutter about taking care of critical ill patients? Well, thank you so much, Vanessa. It really has been a very fun episode for me and truly my honor and privilege to be a part of this session with all of you. I think this is a very exciting time for cardiogenic shock. And I think it's in a very exciting time for critical care cardiology. I personally am very excited for the launch of the pulmonary artery catheter and cardiogenic shock or PAX trial, affectionately known as the escape from escape, led by the cardiogenic shock working group, namely Dr. Naveen Kapoor, one of my mentors, which will be examining whether PA catheter use in heart failure cardiogenic shock patients reduces in-hospital mortality in addition to a number of secondary endpoints that we've pre-specified. We're going to launch soon, and I'm thrilled that our center here at Innova will be one of the sites participating in this study. But most importantly, I hope I've piqued your curiosity about the future of critical care cardiology. Our field is rapidly evolving, and much like Cardio Nerds, which is transforming medical education, I hope that critical care cardiology will also be rapidly transformed over the next decade. There are many unanswered questions, and we need talented people like yourselves to help us solve these vexing but important problems for our patients. Thank you so much. Dr. Senha, thank you so much for that. We're so lucky to have you on this episode and a part of the series. As Vanessa said, you're clearly a giant in the field, and your enthusiasm for this topic is palpable and very impressed with all you've been able to accomplish in the clinical and research spaces in this field. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Also, huge, huge thanks to Dr. Bloomer. She did a lot of legwork for the script and she herself is becoming an expert in this field. And I'm so excited to have you join us and to learn from you and work with you this upcoming year. Thank you all so much for the invitation. Definitely had a blast. I have a blast every time I get to work with you guys and learn from all of you. (laughs) 